Rena and I spent last night at the Living Arts Center at a performance by the Mississauga Festival Choir featuring the Barra McNeils, a Cape Breton ensemble who, uh, who brought, the, uh, brought the house to, uh, uh, to a standing applause by singing these great reminders of the rustic traditions of the East Coast. There's always something about coal miners and, uh, and a little bit about Christmas. But you know, the moment that stopped the audience in their tracks and held our collective breath and then brought the loudest ovation of the evening was when Lucy McNeil stood middle stage with a simple spotlight and a light acoustic accompaniment and sang, O Holy Night. I think a reminder that, that music still has a way of capturing and communicating unlike anything else. Music transcends all cultures. Music and its various expressions is, is something that has been persistent over time and across boundaries. And while it's not the most efficient form of communication, it says something that nothing else can. When people are no longer able to communicate using words, music is able to reach a place that words can't go. Music sing, people sing music in their most honest moments when they need courage. As long as there's been mothers and babies, there's probably been lullabies. As, as long as there's been boy-meet-girl stories, there have been love songs. Uh, we sing. Maybe some of you had those sacred moments of being at the deathbed of somebody during their final hours. And spoken words are no longer able to communicate very much. And then you turn to those songs, those hymns of faith that are rooted deep down in people's minds and their memory, because singing has a way of going directly to the soul. A really old expression. I think it's attributed to St. Augustine, your namesake, Augustine, said that the one who sings prays twice, once with your mind and once with your soul. People sing in the face of hardship. The scriptures are filled with this. Two guys, Paul and Silas, find themselves arrested in prison for their faith. They were in a terrible spot. You know, they'd been stripped naked. They were beaten with rods, severely flogged. They were locked in the stocks. And about midnight, a strange sound could be heard coming from their prison cells. They were singing hymns to God. Who does that? Well, they did that. When we're happy, we sing. When we're desperate, we sing. Jesus was, among other things, a singer. and celebrated his final meal with the disciples just before he leaves, knowing the cross was there right on the horizon waiting for him. We're told that he and his disciples paused to sing together. And only after they'd sung hymns did they go out to the Mount of Olives to pray. And then the story that leads to the cross is set in motion. All of that is a way of saying that music has an indelible imprint in the life of the world and the life of the soul. And music has always been associated with Christmas. The Christmas stories are filled with songs. Zachariah sang, Simeon sang, Mary sang, and Carol read something of Mary's song. The angels sing, and for 2,000 years, people have been writing and singing the songs of Christmas. And and let me be just completely honest, I, I love it. I, I love it all, well, almost all of it, but, 
Uh, and, and so do you, I think most of you. In fact, why don't you do this? Why don't you turn to a person close to you and just whisper in their ear your favorite Christmas song? If you're not sitting close to somebody, this is your chance to move. Don't sit alone. Yeah. Your favorite Christmas song. Just whisper it to them. <laughs> you know, we did this as a staff a year ago. And one of the staff, I'm not going to say her name. But it's not Rochelle. <laughs> Said her favorite song was, I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. Anybody know that one? Not really theologically deep, but I guess humorous. There's something about Christmas that gives way to song. And we're spending these weeks leading up to Christmas using music and worship as a springboard. To un- when Jesus was born, there was a custom in Israel around that time and, and, and it, it situated music again in the middle of the celebration of the birth of a child. When there was a newborn, if the baby was safe, if the mother was... Anybody want to guess what the right gender was in Jesus' days? Yeah, little boy. They would gather together musicians, friends and relatives, and there would be music. If it was a little girl, no music, no kidding. Musicians would go home. Part, part of what Jesus came to do is change the way our world would look at little girls. But anyway, think about the story of Jesus. Because his folks were in Bethlehem, a long way from their ancestral home, or from their native home, they, they were living in Nazareth, there were no friends there, there were no relatives there, there were no musicians there. So God had to make other arrangements. And some of you know the arrangements that he made. There were shepherds hanging out nearby in a field. God sends angels to talk to them. The news is given. Baby's been born. Find him in a manger. Swaddling clothes. Good news. Great joy. Communication had now been given. The information transmitted, but that's not the end of it. You remember the rest of the story. At once that angel was joined by a huge angelic host. Imagine that. Singing God's praises. Singing glory to God in the highest. Peace to all men and women on earth who please him. There was music at the birth of Bethlehem's little boy. Now, why do they do that? Again, music is not the most efficient way to communicate. As a, as a young boy, I had to write an essay as part of a music class on, on, on a live concert. And, and I was imagining I'd get to see sticks or, uh, I don't know, Led Zeppelin or the groups that were touring my... My parents took me to see the Messiah, Handel's Messiah, down at Massey Hall. And I, I remember leaning over to my, uh, to my mom again and again and said, they already said that, they already said that. How many times do I have to say hallelujah for unto us? They already said that. Music is not designed for efficiency. But the universe is not designed for efficiency. It's designed for wonder. And we know this in our hearts. Because every once in a while, the universe will catch us off guard and it will take our breath away. And the only sane response to that is worship. In worship, we come to see how vast is the universe God has made and how big is the God of creation. It's really, it's an essential part of of what we might call spiritual hygiene. 
to worship in the presence of the vastness of God. When I worship, I think about, I, I dwell on, I, I delight in, and I find ways to express the goodness, the wonder, the, the beauty and the majesty of who God is and of everything that He's made. And the impulse to do that, but it, it weaves its way like a current all the way through human culture and literature. You certainly find it all the way through the Bible. Psalmist says, magnify the Lord with me. Let's exalt his name together. We do that. We need to do that because it's rooted in our own posture of need. I recognize I need strength. And so I praise God for his power. I recognize I need wisdom. So I thank God for his guidance. I need forgiveness. So I praise God for his mercy. And I feel alone. And so I celebrate his presence with me. When I worship, when I sing, it connects me with the way things really are. And I come to see the universe as this incredible gift. And I see the possibility of this deep, abiding, persistent joy and this peace that, that doesn't depend on the way my circumstances are. To worship out there that that I'm aware of, is actually a kind of despair. And I might not want to think about it very much, and, and maybe I'm just going to try and grub out a little bit more money, a little more success, a, a little bit more something. But the alternative to worship, to God and love and hope, is despair. In the most honest moments, the people who've tried to wrestle through a world without God have seen this. In fact, one of the most articulate, brilliant spokespersons of a universe without God, a man named Bertrand Russell. I mean, if you've ever wondered why doesn't atheism or skepticism, naturalism, agnosticism, why doesn't give us the great music, the unforgettable songs to sing? I'll tell you why. Here's the words of Bertrand Russell about his understanding of the meaning for existence. He says, purposeless. More void of meaning is the world. Man's growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave that all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system and that the whole temple of human progress must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. And only within the scaffolding of these truths only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation be safely built. Hmm. Maybe so. Try to put that to music. Try to sing that as a lullaby to a child. I tried.
nation is total despair. You'll soon be a corpse, dear, so what should I care? When you are quite dead, dear, you won't make a peep. So shut up your pie hole and let daddy sleep. Yeah. <laughs> It's hard to make great music in the absence of meaning in wonder. In worship, I'm reminded again of just how vast God is and how wondrous is the world that he's made. And I see in worship how small I am, and that's important. It's a good thing every once in a while to see how small you are. And I know that our world doesn't think so. We live in a day that says human beings, we're the men really big. But if there's not something bigger than me, God help me. God help all of us. There was a TED Talk a little little bit ago. A woman named Amy Cuddy. It's a great talk. She turned it into a book called Presence. And it's been watched, like many of those talks, by by scores of millions of people. And she notes that the way that we carry ourselves, our body language, our posture, is really, really important in our lives. And she says, basically, there's... There's two different streams, two different ways of thinking about posture in your body. In fact, why don't you take an audit of yourself physically, the way you're sitting right now? Some people are doing this right now, just as I glance around the room. You're sitting up really straight, shoulders back, head held high. You're taking up space. Some of you have your arms spread out over the chair next to you. You're kind of announcing to the world, I'm here. This is my space. This this is me. (laughs) Alpha leaders. That's what you are. The Greek alphabet starts with the word alpha. It ends with omega. Alpha males, alpha dogs. That's what they do. It's associated, this posture, with, with testosterone, with a sense of presence and sometimes even dominance. When you win, the reflexive response of victory is to assume that posture. Right? You take up space. You celebrate. Amy Cuddy says, interestingly, even people who are born blind from birth, who have never seen other people adopt that posture, do it naturally. And then there are other people out there who make themselves small. They cross up their legs. They fold their arms. They hunch their shoulders. They bow their head a little bit. That's associated actually physically with the increased presence of a body chemical called cortisol. It's the stress hormone. It means you're feeling increased levels of stress. You don't want to be noticed. You feel weakness. You feel inadequacy. And you're trying to make yourself small. And she says that these postures, they have an enormous effect on how you go through life. In fact, she suggests that if you have a really important conversation, say you're going in for a job interview or you're thinking about asking somebody out on a date, if you really want to feel empowered, you should go into a room by yourself just for a couple of minutes and practice your posture. Okay? This is is the Wonder Woman posture. (laughs) Not sure why I picked that one. It's not a very alpha dog one, but there it is. It's a fascinating talk, 
very moving. Cuddy has a powerful personal story. But the need for people to have power, uh, not just a, a, a deep need, a significant one, to feel big. It's interesting in the Christmas story, think about the characters in the story. Think for a second about the Magi. The Magi who came to Bethlehem, they were following a star, you remember that? They're not from Israel. They don't know about the one true God. They're actually practicing astrology, a pagan religion. But God uses that to lead them to Bethlehem. These are powerful, wealthy men. These are the alpha leaders of the day. And Scripture says when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. One translation, an old one, says they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And then on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and it's interesting. Yes, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy, but that's not all they do. What do they do? Make themselves small. Why? Because somehow in the middle of all of it, they have a sense of what God is doing. That the God of all creation is not striking a power pose, not being the alpha God. He's humbling himself. He's making himself small. Infinity is there cramming itself into a tiny child, into the humble confines of a manger as an expression of endearing, redeeming love for you and for me. And it's so staggering that we're told in the Bible, this is Hebrews 1, 6, that when God brings his firstborn into the world, that's Christmas, he says, God let all of the angels worship him. They all bowed down. You don't have to do that. Lots of people don't. Another character in the Christmas story, a guy named Herod, he didn't want to bow down. He was into power poses. He gave himself the nickname Herod the Great. (laughs) Good one. He wanted to be the big one. He didn't want Jesus to even come into the world. He didn't want anybody challenging his supremacy. He made every effort to exterminate him from the face of the world. Jerusalem, there's a church historically associated with the birth of Jesus. No one knows for sure if if that's the good place, but the tradition goes way, way back. It's a very ancient church. It's called the Church of the Nativity. And inside of it, there's this little cave, a grotto, down below, in the belly of the church. And in order to get to it, to access it, you have to go through this really low, narrow door. I'm not sure whether the design of it was intentional, but certainly the, the practice is beautiful, that in order to, to bring yourself into the presence of Jesus, you have to stoop. You have to get on your knees. Herod doesn't want to do that. And I admit there's a little bit of Herod inside of me, maybe inside of all of us. And then by way of contrast, there's still another character in the Christmas story. Mary herself. When God comes to her, God says, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Takes her a few minutes to get her mind wrapped around all of that. And when she does, she responds like this, the words that Carol read, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now this is the dynamic of the kingdom of God. For he 
For God has, has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed because of what he has done. In a nutshell, folks, you can, you can magnify yourself. You can magnify your problems. You can magnify your successes. Or you can decide that I will magnify God. I will declare his greatness. I will ascribe greatness to God's power, his love, his joy. And that's what Mary does. She exalts God. And in so doing, God raises her up. That's what God does. Here's how we're going to apply this. I just want to give you something practical to try for the next few weeks. I'm going to invite you through the course of of these next few busy days of Advent to commit yourself in a few very concrete ways to magnifying God. These are practices to be cultivated. Each time you find yourself thinking about Jesus, you magnify Christ in your life. Whenever you see a nativity scene, you hear a Christmas carol, you see some Christmas lights, you hear the story, you think about Jesus, you decide you're going to worship Him, and you worship Him with your full self. There's a lot of time when people hear the word worship, they think of just a warm feeling that comes over us. And maybe they think, well, I just don't feel like worshiping right now. So I'm not going to do it right now. It just wouldn't be authentic. I'd be a hypocrite. Devotion doesn't work like that. Devotion doesn't rely on emotion. What do we call husbands who only say I love you to their wives when they feel like saying it? (laughs) Ex-husbands. No. (laughs) The reality is we, we worship God as an action, and that means it's available to us always as an act of the will, as a worship being described, and the whole body is involved. Let me give you just a few examples. One man, Manoah, you might try worshiping like that sometime. 2 Samuel 6 says, David danced before the Lord. You might try that. Maybe you need to do it when you're all alone. The psalmist says, clap your hands, all you nations. Worship the Lord in joy. Sometimes worship shouts. Daniel 6 says three times a day, Daniel got down on his knees and gave thanks to God. Another man went with the disciples to the temple courts, walking and jumping up and down and praising the Lord because God had healed him. And the psalmist says, let his faithful people rejoice in this honor and sing for joy even from their beds. People in the Bible used their whole bodies, their will, their minds, they put their whole self in. Because God has done this amazing thing, the way that he, he wired you up. He wired you so that your body actually can affect your mind. This is powerful. A recent study, you know, found that when people were dealing with, with abject depression, just the simple smile muscles made them a little bit happier. You can try it right now. Just do this. Put your finger in the corner of your mouth and think about smiling. If you're sitting next to a grumpy person, put your finger in their mouth. <laughs> what we do with our bodies actually affects the way that we feel. William James, famous psychologist, a hundred years ago said, I don't sing because I'm happy. I'm happy because I use your will. Focus on the worship of God and you can do this. It's the practice through which sanity is regained in life. And I'm going to give you three postures three postures for your body 
to practice over the next few weeks. I keep this in my office. You don't see these much anymore. This came from a a little wee rural church in, in the north shore of Quebec. Some people will recognize it. Do you know what it is? Yeah. It's a kneeling bench. This is an important posture for worship. And somehow, over the centuries, we got rid of it thinking that it was too ritualized. It was too contrived. And we lost something when we did that. There's something powerful in simply getting down in your knees. Mary did this. When you're on your knees, you're saying, I have no power. God, I am what I am because of you, and I place myself completely before you. I'm in your hands. I'm your child. I'm your servant. And it's a strange thing. We think, but think again about what happened to Mary. Greetings, it says in the scripture. You who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. And Mary's response wasn't to say, oh yeah, well that figures, I'm, I'm not surprised. Uh, I know I've been doing pretty well and this sounds like women's work, so I know you called me out. No, she, she right away assumed a posture of humility. To have God come and live with me. The pride that has a way of sneaking its way into our lives. Somebody convinced by this great idea, or I read this book, or it was a result of this conversation, or I grew up in a loving home. Let me tell you something. At the deepest level, the only correct answer that when I was stubborn and willful and self-centered and egotistical, God had mercy on me and sent His Son into the world. He died on a cross for me, and for the rest of my life, I will just say thank you, thank you, thank you. When I'm sane, I'm on my knees. I'm on my knees before God saying, Lord, I don't know why you did this for me. I don't deserve it. But I think that God loves to exalt the humble. So let me encourage you over the weeks ahead to spend some time on your knees. I know there's some of you who think if you get down there, you're never getting up again. Find a way. Here's another posture. God loves loves it when we come to Him with a willing spirit. So you can do this just where you sit. Just take your palms facing upward and drop them on your laps, just like that in the most restful posture of receiving that you can think of. You know, this is actually a trick that lawyers use. When they're deposing witnesses, they'll have them place their hands, palms up on the table as a physical reminder, and it actually changes the way that they respond to questions. It places them in a position of greater vulnerability, of deeper honesty, of more reliance and more trust. It is the posture of a willing, receiving 
Spirit. When we do that, we come before God and say, okay, God, I, I admit it. I, I confess my need for you, and I'm not going to go through my life clutching and exalting myself. Instead, in gratitude, I'm just going to yield to you in dependency. And I will make my life an act of worship. And when I serve, and when I share, and when I give, and when I listen, and when I love, told in Scripture, that's the worship that delights the heart of God. We're going to worship with submitted, willing spirits. And then there's a third posture I'm going to give you. I want to give it to you by way of a story, a Bible story. It's about an old man. As a young man, he was a follower of Jesus. He spent time among Jesus' inner circles. As a young man, he had great promise. He got to be with Jesus and his disciples. But you catch him at the end of his life, a long life, an old man exiled to the island of Patmos. I want you to listen to what he writes. This is Revelation chapter 9. He said in this grand vision that he was given, I saw a huge crowd, too huge to count. Everyone was there. Now imagine this, this is what the Bible tells us will happen. All the nations, tribes, races, and languages, they were there. Brothers and sisters together, no more division, no more war. He goes on, he said, they were all standing. That's the posture of great joy. They couldn't sit anymore. They were dressed in white robes, waving palm branches, standing before the throne and the Lamb and singing heartily. Not just singing, but singing heartily. Good singers, not just croaking it out. Salvation to our God on His throne is what they were singing. God is reigning now. Everything is just the way that God wants it to to be. Salvation belongs to the Lamb. I mean, it just boggles the mind when you think about it. Our God who created the world, which is so wonderful and yet so awful and lost and broken, is now intervening to redeem the world and God is going to wipe away every tear, end oppression, end injustice. Salvation belongs to our God. How can we not worship Him? And I know, I know, we're, we're Baptists. Worse, we're Canadian Baptists. So we don't stand and we don't jump up and down and dance and clap and cheer unless it's the Raptors in the finals and then all bets are off, Right? But since, as a matter of fact, the God of all creation, the person of Jesus, came down to earth, was born in a manger, died on a cross, was raised from the tomb for us, all our guilt is wiped away, the Holy Spirit now lives inside of us, we get the church as our family, our Heavenly Father as our Savior, Jesus as our friend, heaven as our eternal home, every once in a while we ought to just let loose. So I'm going to ask you, church, would you get on your feet? For the posture of joy and worship on your feet. Salvation belongs to our God and we praise Him. We worship Him. We give Him our heart and our love. We honor Him for the greatness of who He is because our God is worthy. This Jesus who has made flesh once stretched out His arms on a tree and it didn't look like a power pose at all. It looked like the end. It looked like the alpha dogs of the world had put him there on the cross and it was their victory. But what they didn't know is that this was another kind of power being released. That God, who is the creator of all things, made himself as small as small could be, but then he rose bigger than life and greater than death. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, Jesus said, the beginning and the end, King of kings, Lord of lords, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb who was slain. And as it turns out, that was the greatest power pose of all. Now it's your turn. I'm going to invite you into a posture of worship and I'm not going to presume to tell you which one it is. But for the next few minutes, I'm going to invite you to assume one of those poses in worship. To close your eyes. If you want to to sit there with palms up on your lap. If you want to raise your hands, if you want to clasp the hand of somebody next to you, put an arm around their shoulder, if you want to remain standing, if you want to drop to your knees, whatever you want to do, I invite you to do that now. Now, God, we give you our worship. We bring our whole bodies and our whole minds, all of our thoughts, our emotions, and we bless you, Lord, above all things. We acknowledge, God, that you are worthy, worthy of our devotion, worthy of our allegiance, worthy of all that we have. God, we humble ourselves now. We pour out our hearts. God, those of us who are grieving, we've lost something, it's just awful. We're so afraid. We're so sad. God, we bring all of that fear before you in hope. God, those of us who are so grateful right now, we have so many things to be thankful for. We bring all of that gratitude to you in worship. God, those of us who are crushed by guilt, we bring our shame before you and we thank you that you're our forgiver. Those of us who are anxious right now, we bring all of that anxiety before you. We thank you that you are our hope. God, you alone are worthy of worship. And we give our worship to you. And we do that especially for your greatest gift of all, Jesus Christ, born in a manger, lived as a carpenter, traveled as a rabbi, killed as a criminal, but raised up as resurrected Lord of all, ascended into heaven as ruler of everything it is. And so in Jesus' name we pray and everyone agreed together and they said, Amen.